Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. And today, Alec and I are doing a bit of a quick fire reactions episode to the big news. So the day we're recording this, the spot ETFs for Bitcoin have been officially approved. So we could say the first prediction we had in our predictions episode has come true within a week. So that's nice. But yeah, it's a big day. And we just want to give a quick overview of what happened and our thoughts. So yeah, Alec, what do you think? What is your takeaway from the event? I think everyone knew it was happening i expected there was a, a part of me in the back of my mind that was like okay maybe the sec will actually screw everyone over and last minute despite all the predictions every big firm in the world saying this is likely they would do a rug pull and be like ah just kidding this actually isn't going to happen what does it mean we kind of spoke about it a bit more in our you know 2024 predictions for the year but i think this is groundbreaking for crypto bitcoin web3 generally it's all about institutions large players who are investing a lot of resources and time and mental capacity to understanding this space believing that it has value and believing that it has value for their investors right and they want to move into this space i think the weird thing about the bitcoin etfs is that it's anti-web3 in a way you effectively have them acting as the custodians and rather than individuals owning the bitcoins themselves the blackrock for example will actually own the bitcoin on your behalf but i think some of the numbers coming in saying there's a lot of investment that's going to come in i think predictions are around 200 billion in the first six months or something like that so i think if we are kind of anti-speculation here we prefer utility it seems but i think this is going to be a boon for the web3 space generally as well so although i'm kind of opposed to speculation at its core i like that there'll be probably be a trickle down effect to general utility for the space but what do you think jack i can see you're very excited with a triple welcome to start off with yeah i think as you said it was a bit of a foregone conclusion it felt like right it wasn't it wasn't really a prediction on our part that it, anything would happen it was just going with everyone else saying that it would but yeah it feels like the moment for bitcoin and the wider kind of digital asset space to get a bigger foothold in traditional finance which i think is a good thing overall and yeah even though it's not exactly a web3 thing and there's a lot of people out there a lot of detractors bitcoin maxis and ogs saying this is a really bad thing this is you know, whatever happens with the price, this is bad, but it's going to make people accustomed to not having custody over their own Bitcoin, right? You could get exposure by buying Bitcoin, not by buying into an ETF. But as you say, this could be a kind of the first domino in wider acceptance of uh, Bitcoin and, and all these asset classes. I know that the SEC and Gary Gensler have issued a statement saying we're not actually endorsing Bitcoin here. Mm -hmm. um, their, their hand was kind of forced and we'll get into that. But I think this is overall a very positive step for, for the whole industry, right? Whatever side of the debate you're on, I think this is just part of it becoming the, the furniture, which is a good thing. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point you raised as well. I've seen lots of people on Twitter, X, whatever we call it these days, saying this is just a stepping stone and traditional finance will take over DeFi and soon they'll own Bitcoin and there'll be no decentralization or distribution. You idiots and all this kind of stuff. It's funny. Yeah. But to come back to the Gary Gensler point about the SEC, I was tweeting you. I was not tweeting you. I was WhatsApping you last night. Be like, have you seen all the stuff that's going on? It's absolutely mental. Should we go back to it? Because it's so funny. It's honestly like a drama series rather than like the SEC actually running a stable practice. So what happened was yesterday, there was a tweet that went out from the SEC's account saying that the ETF had been approved. And obviously, BTC spiked, the entire crypto market spiked, I think there was a lot of hype thinking, okay, this has finally happened. 
And then the SEC came out later saying, actually, this tweet has been hacked and it hasn't actually been approved. And then I think BTC dropped below, I think it was like an extra few percentage down the original price after the tweet. So it's actually caused like a bit of a market uproar in the space of like a couple of hours. Yeah, it's funny. It's just kind of shades of a few years ago when there are a number of different Twitter accounts of high profile people uh, hacked and, and asking, soliciting for BTC addresses and things like that. It reminds you of how, you know, despite this being a good thing and a boom for industry, it's still very early and maturing. And even Bitcoin, the largest of all of the blockchains and digital assets, it's still subject to such big swings based on a single tweet, right? We know what happened with Elon Musk and Donald Trump a few years ago. We're still in that same place. So even though it feels like we've grown up a little bit, it's still this kind of slightly Wild West thing where you can increase and drop the price at will by, by what happens on certain Twitter accounts, which is not just not a great thing. But it was definitely funny to watch in, in the build-up. Yeah. And the funny thing is that the SEC's role is to protect investors and maintain order deficient markets, right? And prevent market manipulation. And there's been loads of tweets and memes coming out saying, okay, who's going to investigate the SEC for market manipulation? Is it going to be the SEC? I think there was a really funny tweet that they did in October saying, careful what you read on the internet. The best source of info for the SEC is the SEC. And everyone's been like, well, obviously not. I think even X came out and tweeted saying, actually, they didn't have two-factor authentication on their Twitter account which is just mind-boggling and these are the people that we're trusting to actually kind of preside over whether things get institutional adoption it blows my mind yeah clearly they weren't paying their monthly subscription to twitter blue twitter <laughs> twitter, twitter premium to make sure they had 2fa or whatever but yeah it's just a classic you know we can't have a day go by in, in web3 and crypto without a bit of drama that is a bit unnecessary but to kind of boil it all down right what's actually happened is again a bit of a foregone conclusion and really on that point about Gary Genza saying it's not exactly an endorsement. It does feel like that because it looks like the reasoning for the approval is more about the appeal by Grayscale, right? So Grayscale previously applied to run their own uh, spot ETF for Bitcoin and that had been rejected and then they appealed it. And it seems like more the result of the, um, the SEC going to court over this appeal and losing essentially not being able to provide mm. enough justification and reasoning for that initial rejection of Grayscale that has forced their hand into now approving wholesale these uh, spot ETFs. So yeah, it's it feels like they're doing it with reluctance significantly. Yeah, I saw that of the five people who voted on this, I think it was uh, two voted for, two voted against, then Gary Gensler had the deciding vote. So it was a close run thing and it was by no means like a foregone conclusion. But yeah, you're completely right. This all happened because Grayscale basically said you, there wasn't enough evidence provided to as why you rejected our ETF. And yeah, quite importantly, Gary Gensler has said, this is not uh, a signal to one that we endorse or approve Bitcoin. But also, it also said this is not a signal that we're going to approve other crypto asset securities. Despite that, actually, one of the winners from this was because I think BTC was actually a foregone conclusion. All the investment had already come in and the price didn't change that much on the actual approval notice. I think it actually changed more on the fake approval. What really went up was Ethereum. I think Ethereum was up 15% on the actual official approval that came out late last night, UK time. That was up 15%. And I think already people are thinking, okay, what's the next big thing? It's probably going to be that people are going to start to file. I think they already have started to file for Ethereum spot ETFs. Yeah, exactly. And similarly to Bitcoin, Ethereum has already had futures ETFs approved, right? They were approved mm -hmm. a little while ago, same with Bitcoin. But those futures ETFs, again, futures ETFs, not speculating on the spot price, but indirect exposure to the price. 
Ethereum ones really had a very low uptake, actually, so that they, they, they were approved and not, not much use has happened because I think a lot of people were just you're not that interested necessarily. But spot ETFs of Ethereum might be of much more interest to, to your average investor who does want to get exposure to Ethereum. So, yeah, people are now saying that Ethereum is probably a shoe in to have a similar process to get spot ETFs approved in, in the near future. So, yeah, as you said, Ethereum, I think I, I saw somewhere that it was uh, still despite going up and, and the whole market following Bitcoin. I, I noticed that Ethereum is still at like something like a 32 month low versus BTC, mm. right? So it's still not benefiting enough and maybe is something to, to help put BTC a little bit further forward. Another interesting thing about this application and from what I've seen, this there is precedent for this, but it's not necessarily the way it always happens. And, and it, it's, it's, at, it's at the discretion of the SEC, but everything was approved. So all 11 applications for the spot ETS, because it wasn't just BlackRock, even though we talk about BlackRock, it wasn't just them. There are 11 applications. You had uh, BlackRock's application by iShares, their, their entity, Bitwise, Hashdex, Valkyrie, Vanek, Fidelity even. So some very household names mm. in the investing world all had their applications in and all of them were approved without fail. So I think this is a good thing, right? This is showing that maybe the, the SEC didn't want to favor one party and let one party dominate the industry from now on. It's kind of a much more fair way to start off this uh, ETF craze. Yeah, and already a week ago, we were starting to see that all the companies that have applied for them were gearing up to trade from today, basically. As soon as the acceptance happened, mm -hmm. which it did last night, they said they were going to be trading today. And we already saw that there was a kind of uh, a price battle on who could charge the lowest rates for actually jumping in to, to their ETFs, which is quite interesting. I think that people have been changing the prices to between these companies all the time and already getting quite competitive in this space. I think you raise an interesting point about Ethereum. I do wonder if there's going to be... A difference in clientele like bitcoin everyone knows about it and i think already when you talk about ethereum it's kind of maybe slightly smaller group like it's maybe more specialist people that actually understand the market a bit more there's a lot more in my mind anyway right now utility coming from the ethereum space than there is from the btc space so i wonder if there's going to be that same speculative purely investment make money fast number go up type drive from an ethereum spot etf as there is from this btc spot etf my thoughts exactly. I think maybe the lack of uptake in the futures ETFs previously for Ethereum are down to the fact that if you put a pin in how much of the use of Ethereum and Bitcoin is on speculation versus building applications, mm -hmm. then for B for BTC at least, it's something like 90% people are using it for speculation. And in Ethereum, much, much more of it is being used for building real things. It's less likely that people are interested in Ethereum for just speculation. So yeah, I 100% agree. It shows the value. Well, it shows the value of utility, not if you're a speculator, but it shows the difference, right? And what happens as, you know, you could argue Ethereum has matured more in that sense than Bitcoin. It stayed as this speculative asset. So yeah, maybe we'll see a, a similar lack of uptake in Ethereum, spot ETFs, but who knows? One I want to highlight from the applications list actually is uh, Grayscale. So Grayscale, you may have heard of GBTC. So they already had a trust structure that you could invest in. I think it started a long time ago. I think maybe 2014, maybe slightly earlier. So you've been able to invest with them with this trust product for a number of years to gain exposure to uh, Bitcoin. Now, that hasn't been an ETF, obviously, until now. And as part of this, their application was actually to upgrade uh, or tr change the trust structure to a spot ETF structure. So to formalize things a little bit more. And Grayscale was one of the companies that were heavily Im Im impacted by the goings on the last number of years with FTX, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that we've talked about. So it's interesting to, I'm wondering who do you think is going to be the dominant player going forward, right? Because they arguably they had the biggest financial product 
for people getting exposure to Bitcoin until now, but you see these other 10 players, and I'm sure we'll see more coming in, will now compete with them for that. And a big part of this might be fees, right? Because they currently charge a quite a large fee for for their product. Yeah, I'm unsure. I think of the, the ones there, like the only ones that I actually recognize the name of are Fidelity and BlackRock, but it's all going to come down to fees for me and how they can be used. But it's nice to know that there won't be a complete monopoly. And the only thing that people have heard of is BlackRock, but it's good to know that there are all these other companies that are competing on fees and actual development as well. I think one of the interesting things I saw as well was that one of the applications, Vanek, were planning to donate 5% of all the proceedings from the, the spot ETF to Bitcoin developers. And they basically thanked them for maintaining the network and said that they were the reason that this was going ahead, which is quite nice to give back to the community. And this is already one of the benefits that we're going to see from the inflow of money is that your Bitcoin developers will actually be supported on this, which is a nice little angle. I think that was really you know, good to see and counters that narrative that this is just TradFi getting their claws into Bitcoin to maybe control it a bit more. I think it's good to see Vanek, and I'm sure others will follow because you have a few more crypto aligned or crypto native filings in there. People like uh, Hashdex, I think, you know, Bitwise, they're all they're all very pro crypto in general. So it's good to see them that they're supporting the development, continued development and, and up, upkeep of, of Bitcoin. That's very important because the, develop, the developers basically have to rely on donations. Uh, it's very open source. You can contribute from anywhere. So it's good to see that. So I think wrapping things up on just the event itself, hopefully that's the last we need to speak about it for a little while. Maybe we won't see the uh, the impact of this for a while, but a trickling effect, more capital flowing in, as you said, billions projected to potentially come in and in effectively invest in Bitcoin via these funds, whether that's the, the, the issuers themselves having to invest in the Bitcoin or people bringing external capital from yeah. that. But that should be it for now. No, I think like looking, we talked about it a little bit in the BlackRock ETF episode when we went into a bit more detail on this. I think one of the interesting things that we've talked about constantly is the narrative around Bitcoin and BTC, right? Is that originally the original white paper that was written in 2008 was around this electronic cash system, right? A peer-to-peer -peer exchange system that was meant for utility. And like we're saying, the narrative now is all around gold, digital gold, being able to hold, make value and number go up, number go down, that kind of stuff. And that's quite frustrating in a way. I think uh, say it's nice for the, the general ecosystem that money's coming in. But one of the things that we should talk about that's actually mentioned in the ETF application, the BlackRock ETF applications, is that there's different types of Bitcoin as well. There's actually different forks and different versions of Bitcoin that are currently in deployment. And the interesting thing is that the ETF applications actually mention these, saying there are different forks, and it's not just BTC. There's these other ones called BCH and BSV. And I think they also warrant a bit of an explanation as to how they operate. Are they the exact kind of principle and narrative like the BTC, where it is just you know, low transaction rates, all about holding value, number go up, number go down? Or do they have a different use case? Yeah, we mentioned it before. The fact that they said they reserve the right to uh, these spot applications, these spot ETFs, reserve the right for their own purposes to define what is Bitcoin, right? Which is very interesting because many people would think, well, what do you mean define Bitcoin? I thought that was mm. pretty well defined. Mm. And actually, if you look throughout the history, there is a lot of contention on that issue. Do you want me to just take a stab at this, Alec? I know I've been here longer, but I haven't been here for the whole 15 years. But what do you think? Are you gonna, is this going to be a lecture or <laughs> I think you're going to really enjoy this, aren't you? I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version of this. So I won't go into all of it. <laughs> so we've actually just had the 15th anniversary of the launch of Bitcoin. So that Gen Genesis block was mined, I think, January the 3rd, 2009. So we've had that just pass us recently. And for a, a number of years, not a huge amount happened. It was very low adoption. Barely anyone knew about it. As it got 
more popular, <clears throat> more people start using the network. Uh, in 2010, one of the big events happens where the block size limit is effectively introduced into Bitcoin, right? So mm -hmm. this, and it was introduced by Satoshi, the thinking was around the size of the network at the time was very small and the machines securing it were quite small, you know, home computers effectively. So this was to help limit the effect of potential denial of service attacks, right? Flooding the network with lots of messages that would make it hard to run and saying, we're going to keep things small while we grow. So this introduction mm -hmm. of the one megabyte limit happened. And at the time we're talking 14 years ago at this point, right? One megabyte, it means a very different thing to, to what it does mm -hmm. today with Moore's law and everything. So you fast forward seven years and that one megabyte limit starts to cause divisions in the community of Bitcoin. They're saying this isn't big enough. We, we, we're limited to effectively seven transactions per second. That's nothing. How can we build a new digital cash system, as you mm -hmm. said, using that? So in 2017, you have the great scaling debate, right? And this is where we have a big fight between different camps. One camp saying we want to keep the me one megabyte size limit. We need to make sure this is usable by anyone on any kind of small device. And then you have this other camp that says, no, we need to change with the times. We need to scale. We need to allow more on-chain transactions who say we need to increase this block size limit. So yeah, this this was a big moment for, for Bitcoin in 2017. Okay, so just to understand that and summarize that we had you know, okay traditional bitcoin at the time was everyone was one camp and then all of a sudden there was this debate around okay these blocks effectively they determine how many transactions can be processed per given unit of time it's typically around 10 minutes right and if we want to have bigger blocks so more transactions can actually fit into those blocks then we can have a network with more transactions going on per second you're saying that there was around seven transactions or was it per second at that time or per minute yeah, at that yeah, time per second well, that's nothing right if like this is meant to be an electronic cash system to compete with things like Visa and MasterCard that are doing hundreds of millions of transactions per second, then it's all, in my mind, it, it seems that you need to scale, right? You want to actually increase the block to facilitate that. And you're saying the reasoning for actually not increasing the block size was around being able to run it on different types of computers, so like not smaller computers, Raspberry Pis, mobile phones, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is exactly. It's much more of a philosophical reason for wanting to keep one megabyte, right? Because one megabyte is nothing, okay? And and every year, again, with Moore's law and the halving of cost for storage and, and computing power effectively means that you should be able to double at least every year your capacity. But the philosophy is to keep it as small as possible so that anyone can be a node, quote unquote, in the network mm -hmm. at any time, can run this on a mobile phone, can run it on a small, low-powered device, like an IoT device, maybe even... That kind of mm. thing. So it was a it's a philosophical idea, which has not, not necessarily so much merit in my view. But mm. that was one side of the camp. And the other side of the camp was, yeah, this is, needs to be digital money. We need it to scale on chain. And another aspect of this is, as you said, the larger the blocks, the more transactions you can have per block. That also impacts the fees, right, that you need to oh, pay yeah. to miners. Because if you have a small block that can't fit many transactions in, then you can have more competition to get your transaction in the next block in the next 10 minutes. So you'll end up having to pay a higher fee. And it's a big reason why we have such high fees on, on BTC today. Okay, so increasing the size of the blocks is around having more transactions in. So we get lower fees per transaction. Like we all, We're always talking about how costly it is to actually transact in Bitcoin or in Ethereum right now. And it also enables faster transactions. Okay, that sounds good overall. So what actually happened then? There was this split between the two camps or? Yes, exactly. So a very contentious split between the two camps. So in 2017, yeah, I think in the summertime, you then have 
the first kind of major what we call hard fork or fork in Bitcoin. So you end up with two blockchains with a shared history from this point, which mm. is really fascinating. So everything was the same up to a point. And then after that, there's two streams that come from that. One is what we still call BTC, Bitcoin Core today. And the other is the other camp, Bitcoin Cash, so BCH, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. which is the kind of big block scaling camp. And one thing to mention about what happened in this fork is that as part of implementing this change, there was a, a big change to the Bitcoin core code, right? So that what you see today, what you think of as Bitcoin, typically how that works changed quite significantly in uh, this, this forking procedure because they introduced something called SegWit. And mm. SegWit essentially stands for segregated witness. Now think of witness as digital signature. So we talk about digital signatures all the time as a really powerful thing in Bitcoin. And effectively, what this change did was to separate the signatures from Bitcoin transactions. And it mm -hmm. really changes the way they get validated. It's a huge departure from the original signing model of, of Bitcoin that we had previously. Anyway, long story short is it happened. We have two competing blockchains. Bitcoin Core carries on as is in the background until present day. We'll come back to that. In the other camp, the big block scaling camp, everyone agreed. We want bigger blocks for about a year. And then one year later, that camp split as well. And this time it wasn't so much on scaling. Some people were saying, mm. how fast should we scale? That was a point of contention. But the real issue this time was on how arbitrarily should we change Bitcoin at all? So this Bitcoin cash camp that you have two factions now, one faction says, oh, we need to add this and that. We need to, we could add this little extra bell and whistle over here. We could do this mm. special type of smart contract. We could change the opcodes a little bit, the, the, the programming language. We can change da, 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 all these kind of slightly boring things that no one really cares about. <laughs> and the other camp was saying, okay, these all sound cool. These, I can see a value in them, but what precedent are we setting here? Are we just going to change the code willy-nilly for the next 50, 100 years? Like, what, what is this precedent setting? And they said, no, we want to keep things stable. We want to just have what, uh, a stable protocol that doesn't change every six months. Well, that makes sense, right? We often talk about blockchains and whatever cryptocurrencies underneath the blockchain sometimes are funding the blockchains in a lot of ways as being similar to the internet protocol that we use today. If you want to build applications on top of these things, which should be the goal in a lot of ways, if we're trying to use these for utility and not just speculation, then you want stability. You don't want that core code changing every other month. And it's not that it's completely set in stone forever. If there's a real necessary change for whatever reason, then that should happen. But it's, you shouldn't be iterating every month. Imagine if like TCP IP, like the internet protocols that we today yeah. changed every other week. Like that is so much uncertainty for enterprises and developers to build on top of because the fundamental technology you're building on might change and you have to change your technology. That's the exact opposite of a protocol, right? That's, I don't know what that is, like some kind of application that no one wants to use. Okay, so you have the first split is around increasing the block size makes sense. And then you've got Bitcoin cash. And then, so then there's another split between Bitcoin cash. And what I'm looking at now is this other one called Bitcoin SV, right? Uh, with Bitcoin SV trying to increase the block size even further and Bitcoin cash trying to maintain what the current block size and also change the code every so often. Yeah. So in the second fork that the two camps split and emerging from that is BCH, kind of the continuation of the, the, the previous chain. So again, we have a fork with three prongs now, effectively split across two events. And the second camp in this second fork is now BSV, Bitcoin SV. So where we are today, you have three kind of slightly different philosophies, three different chains, all competing still, right? So they're all mining blocks as we speak. In BTC, you still have the small block philosophy. So you have uh, the SegWit change actually gave it effectively four megabyte limit, but again, still tiny, still not really capable of doing 
enough transactions for a digital cash system. Mm. And there you've, you've had recently things like the ordinal craze with lots of NFTs. You've had uh, BitVM, which is a way of doing more smart contracts on Bitcoin. So there's now more pressure coming back on BTC to maybe increase block size. And you don't want to make a prediction, but you could end up seeing another potential scaling debate there coming in the next year or two. I was going to say, like, I'm looking at the stats right now. And between the different the three different forks you've mentioned, the versions of Bitcoin and the price of what BTC, as most people know, is 46K right now. The price of Bitcoin Cash is $255 and the price of BSV is $90. So does that indicate like usage or how does that work? Well, that's a that's a difficult question. It's very hard to know the reasoning for the prices. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin Core BTC from that original fork has remained the dominant chain by far, right? Even if you look at hash rate, it has 99% of the network hash rate across the three, across all proof of work chains. Why does hash rate relate to dominance? Well, the hash rate is a proxy for how much support it has and how much mm -hmm. investment is going into protecting the network. Okay, because it's a function of how difficult it is to undermine the network, right? So yeah, how much energy do you need to expend to come and change things or, or, or do something that is nefarious? To, yeah, uh, that's because these it. are all proof of work blockchains, right? So yeah, they're, they're, okay, I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so all three are proof of work, and they're on a bit of a nice spectrum, right? So you have BTC on one end, which is small block philosophy. On the other end is BSV, which kind of has gone to an unbounded block size, and it's really mm -hmm. interesting. It's kind of saying we want the block size to be market determined, not by some parameter in the code. So there's actually no hard block limit in the protocol of BSV. It's now just every miner chooses what they're willing to mine and that's because seen that increase over time and then bch is somewhere in the middle right it's neither here nor there really but it has retained some of the brand that bch had back in the day bch at one point there was talk of it flipping in price btc you know it's nowhere near that mm. now but at one point it looked like that could happen and that, that yeah. brand retention has been quite good for bch and just to bring it back like the reason we mentioned these different forks of bitcoins that in all of these etf filings that are now hitting the mainstream they do speak about all the different forks to say there's actually different forks, different versions of Bitcoin that we actually could be investing in. So it might be that some of the investment of funds go towards BTC, BCH, BSV. But it's just to be aware that there are different types of Bitcoins with different philosophies and quite importantly, different technologies. I think one of the most interesting things to do with these is actually the halving event that's coming up soon. We talked about it in a previous episode, well, actually the predictions episode about him, how impactful it's going to be for not just the price, like we said, okay, there's going to be less supply coming in and increased demand. So that tends to mean the price goes up. But it's also around, okay, if you have so many transactions coming into your network, into your blocks, well, you get a fee for that. You get a fee per transaction. So if you have a small block, as we've seen in BTC right now, Actually, if you can no longer be completely reliant on the fees that come in or the subsidies that come in for mining the block, because that's going to be diminished and eventually that'll be none. You won't get any subsidies for actually mining a block. So really, miners will need to start to move from this idea of getting rewards for mining blocks to getting rewards and fees for actually mining transactions. And if you're limiting the number of transactions in your block, actually you're limiting the amount of profit and revenue you can make. So this is why Jack said there's actually discussions right now in BTC to go against maybe the original decision to say we're going to fix the size of the blocks and fix the number of the transactions to maybe start to think about okay, what happens if we do increase the number of transactions and the number of blocks because we need to start to move our business model from the mining reward to actually the transaction fees that we get per mined block, right, Jack? Yeah, exactly. And if you think of, Say you have a block of a given size, right? How you get fees from that over time, if this subsidy wanes away and in, in 
however many years, that subsidy will be zero. They'll, the, the miners will only be able to subsist on the, uh, the fees generated. So your fees in a block are effectively how many transactions do you have multiplied by what is the average transaction fee? Mm. What's the going rate for your transaction? If you look at the number of transactions on these three networks, they range again from around 400,000 a day on, uh, on BTC all the way up to 3.8 million per day on BSV, right? So BSV is actually by far the dominant force in transaction processing right now. Yeah. It has about 53% of all transactions processed across all crypto. But Bitcoin is actually still raking in more. BTC is still raking in more in terms of fees because people are there's demand enough and people are willing to pay much, much higher fees. I've seen recently it's something like anywhere between two and four million times more expensive oh to transact on BTC, right? So I guess the point is they're not doing it regularly, right? These aren't transactions that you're making every day constantly as a cash system would be or as a utility application would be. It's that I have a million BTC, I want to move it to a different wallet or I want to sell it in one big chunk because it is the big institutional investors that are just trying to make profit from this. They don't care if they're making like 10 million pound on a move. They don't care about paying like 100 pound for this. But it really goes against the whole point of removing unnecessary intermediaries and making this whole process more efficient if you're willing to pay these ridiculous fees to do so. Yeah, this whole dynamic and what we're seeing with the successive halvenings every four years is... BTC effectively doubling down into this speculative asset and not a digital monetary system, not a digital cash system mindset, because the more this happens over time, the less incentive you have to transact Bitcoin at all. The only incentive is to hold it and never mm. transact it and hope that the price keeps going up. Whereas things like BSV and BCH trying to use it actually as money or for other applications, as we talk about using data and things like that then you need the fees to be much lower. So it's going to be interesting to see how those numbers change over the next year. Maybe we can review them in a year's time and, and, mm -hmm. and see what we'll see what impact the halvenings have. But it's definitely and, going to be significant and could affect the ETFs as well. And I guess one of the angles here is that this is probably one of the, the biggest drivers for things like uh, the Lightning Network, right? If it's so costly to do things on the layer naught or the layer one of the of Bitcoin, why don't I just you know, push it to a Lightning Network and do everything above? And we've spoken about this a little bit. We probably need to touch on side chains and layer twos and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. The more you extract from the security and you know, authenticity of the layer one, the kind of the more risk is involved in that. And I think we have a similar opinion that if you can't do it on a layer one, then you probably should maybe shouldn't be doing it or your layer one's not good enough. But this is interesting. We'll definitely have a follow-up episode that goes into this. We're focused on the BlackRock ETFs and approvals and all this kind of stuff. Did you see this other thing as well around uh, someone sending 1.2 million to the Genesis block address of, uh, of Bitcoin? Yeah, I did. You literally cannot have an event in Bitcoin without there being some mystery attached to it. it was just, and this is just the latest mystery box we've got in Bitcoin. Yeah. So basically, there's this address that's associated with the Genesis block, right? Is it the mining reward that went to this address that hasn't been spent? It's just laying there. So you know the exact address and the, the funds associated with it haven't moved since I think it was mined ever. So they've never been moved. So they're untouched. And I think it was like a week ago or something like this. Someone detected that 1.2 million in Bitcoin had been sent from some Coinbase address to this original untouched address. And there's a lot of speculation as to where it came from. It was a Coinbase address. They could, they do AML on all their accounts, especially for this kind of level of a transaction. So they do know who it came from. I saw some people saying it was from BlackRock, saying that this was to do with the fact that it's going to be approved and a thanks or something like that, to Satoshi, whatever. I saw some people saying that it was related to this copper trial. And we haven't talked about the copper trial much, but Jack, do you know about this? Because this is also something that's been spoken about in the ETF application by BlackRock. 
Yeah, I'm familiar with this because, again, it's relevant to the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, right? One of the, these hot topics and everyone typically says, you know, the mysterious moniker Satoshi, who is it? But it's actually at the subject of a court case that's coming up. And this is also something, you know, while we're talking about it now, it has been cited in some of these SEC uh, applications for an ETF. But yeah, it's, it's what, do you, what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so my understanding is effectively there's this um, there's a court case in the High Court of the UK right now, and it's between this organization Copper, which are like this open source organization of all the um, powerful crypto players like Coinbase, um, Kraken in there, who else in there? Basically, lots of big exchanges, lots of big players with interest in crypto versus this individual Craig Wright or Dr. Craig Wright around the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. So court cases around, he alleges he is Satoshi Nakamoto. They're alleging he isn't. And I think the court cases around, okay, is that true or is it not, right? And I think that it's relevant to the ETF application because if someone is Satoshi Nakamoto and they're obviously someone is Satoshi Nakamoto, if they come to light, they have access to like 1.1 million Bitcoins. And that has like a percentage, that's like 5% of the entire supply. So there's a big risk that someone all of a sudden could just decide to liquidate 5% of the entire supply of Bitcoin. So they just mentioned it in this application to say, okay, if this happens, if this person proves they are Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a big risk for us. Like it affects you know, the legal governance. It affects um, people investing in the space. It could undermine the network. So this is why it's relevant. And they just mentioned it in the application to say to be aware of this. But it'd be really interesting to see that what comes out of that court case. Yeah, I think one way or another, this mysterious $1.2 million transaction to the Genesis address will be relevant to the spot ETFs because, you know, either on one side of the speculation, it's some kind of marketing ploy by one of the applicants uh, for the ETFs and they, they, maybe we'll see them do something with it. Or it could be, as many people are speculating, related to this Cobra case that's happening because it's been sent to this address. And yeah, why we bring it up now is because it was mentioned in these applications it, that it was it, it could be significant and have an impact on the price of Bitcoin and all these forks, you know, BDC, BCH, BSV, could impact the price of these if the identity of Satoshi is revealed. I mean, we mentioned this again around the, I think we mentioned the Coinbase IPO filing, right? Mm. A number of episodes ago, Coinbase had to cite this as one of their main risks is if the if Satoshi just comes forward and, you know, the identity is proven of Satoshi, then that could impact the price of their shares as a company. So it's, 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 it's a big thing. It's an interesting thing. So yeah, let's just watch this space. It's exciting. There's a lot of things happening. I think um, this is a great start for the year for Web3 crypto generally. I don't think it could have got off to a better start. And, you know, one of our six predictions has come true. So yeah, we're on track <laughs> to actually not be proven wrong. And I think uh, on that note, I want to thank everyone for listening, wherever you may be. And join us next time as we untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.